The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. You know, there's a fine line between bravery and stupidity. It's hard to know when something goes from being courageous to just flat out being not a good idea, being unwise. So let me give you an example. This is a, a, you could look this up online. This is a true story of a guy by the name of a John Stapp. And he, lives, he lived in New Mexico. And he decided that what he was going to do is he's going to go out into the desert of Mexico, New Mexico He was going to take a sled and he was going to attach a rocket engine to the back of his sled and just kind of see what happens. So he takes his sled, he goes out in the desert and he he straps this rocket engine. I'm not making this up. He gets on the sled, he lights the rocket engine and it propels him hundreds of miles per hour and miraculously he survives. He wore a helmet. Okay, I guess that's what it was. What did it? Okay, now if I were to tell you, okay, is that brave? Like, is that on the, on the spectrum? Is that more brave or is that more just stupidity? Hopefully, you're going to agree with me that's tipping towards the stupidity side of things. Am I getting nodding heads out there? Because some of you are about to go try it. I do not recommend <laughs> that you do that. Okay, so if I just give you those details, a man takes his sled into the desert, gets a rocket engine, puts it on the back, I think we're in agreeing that that's on the stupid side of things. Okay, but let me fill in some more details because it might change our perspective on the story a little bit. Okay, what if I was to tell you that this guy, John Paul Stapp, was a PhD in biophysics. He was a colonel in the Air Force and served in the Air Force as the aviation medical examiner. And what if I was to tell you all of which is true. And what if I was to tell you that this was actually an Air Force, happened outside the Air Force base in New Mexico and was actually a calculated experiment where they took this sled, placed it on a track in the late 50s, strapped him to it with a helmet on, and they launched him with a rocket engine to see what the effects would be on the human body. And what if I were to tell you that the reason that they did this was because this guy, Colonel Stapp, was leading research on how high and how fast can a, a fighter jet be going and then still be able to use the ejection seat. And that they had done all of the calculations, they had done, he had done all of the medical research, and the only thing left to do was to actually test it on a human being. And he didn't want someone else to have to test his research, so he himself volunteered. He got on a sled, not like a pod or not like a little rocket ship. He got on a sled, he put a helmet on, and and they started the rocket engines. Within five seconds, it propelled him over 630 miles per hour, and it came to a stop in 1.4 seconds. So let me give you an example of what he experienced. They say that astronauts experience like a G-force on the G-force scale, something like three Gs. They say that some uh, fighter pilots can experience up to nine Gs. 
he volunteered for this experiment. He experienced over 46 Gs. He, had, he lost his eyesight for about 24 hours after this, never fully re- regained it. It had dust particles were flying through his spacesuit so fast that they penetrated his skin and created blisters on his skin around his body. And he did this all calculated outside an Air Force base. Now, lucky for us, they actually have historic video footage of this. I think we should probably watch it. Do you guys want to see this? I think, I mean, we got to see this. Can we just talk about it? All right, check it out. He was trying to work out. He was trying to work out the maximum speed at which pilots could safely eject. During a seven-year period, he volunteered for 26 potentially lethal experiments. So Dr. Stapp kept going faster and faster, and finally in December 1954, he hit his uh, fastest speed. According to the newspaper, 632 miles an hour. According to the calculations I made from feet per second, at one point he hit 639. But uh, the average would be about 632. And he stopped very, very short. Just a matter of a second or less. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Okay, he, for doing this feat, here's some of the accolades he got. He's in the International Space Hall of Fame, the National Aviation Hall of Fame. He got the Air Force Cheney Award for Valor. He got the Lovelace Award from NASA for his aerospace medical research. He's also on the cover of Time magazine. So what's this guy doing? Takes a sled out into the desert, puts a rocket engine on it. That's essentially what he did. That takes a lot of courage, a lot of bravery, a lot of boldness. But when we hear all how strategic this experiment was, how tactical it was, how much research went into it, how many people were around it, okay, this isn't maybe uh, on the stupidity side, this may not be as foolish as it sounds. This was a needed experiment that has gone on to save countless lives. So here's what we're, we're wrestling with. This morning, we're wrestling with this idea of boldness and wisdom. So often we're tempted to think, okay, man, the more bold I do something, automatically that means the less wise it is, or maybe the opposite. The more I lean on wisdom, the less risk I'm going to take, the less courage is going to be required, the less boldness. And sometimes we're wrestling with, okay, I need to take a bold step, but how, where does wisdom come into this picture. See, no matter what we're building, we're all called to build. You're building something. We're wired as humans to build. No matter what you're building, it's going to need both boldness and wisdom. How do those two things come together? We're going to take a look at the story of Nehemiah this morning, and we're going to see how he harnesses these two attributes. We're looking in Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1, do a little bit of a review of, what, of where we've been in this story. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. This, is, this takes place about 450 years before Christ inside the Persian Empire. It was the superpower of the world at the time. And we're hearing the autobiography of a guy named Nehemiah. This is a historical story. And it also has so many in, inspiring, uh, inspirational, and also leadership 
uh, principles in here that really are transformative. So let's look at Nehemiah 2, verse 1. It says this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Got Nehemiah, he's the cupbearer to the king. This is actually an important role. He's a servant, works in the palace. He probably stands before this king probably multiple times a day. This king Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. Persia rules the known world. This is probably the most, this is the most powerful man in the world. Nehemiah is in his presence, serving him wine. One day, the king says, why are you sad? What's going on with you? Now, we actually know why Nehemiah is sad. We learned this in the last chapter. Nehemiah is a Jewish man serving in this, Persian, in this Persian kingdom. He's a Jewish man, and he just found out that, that Jerusalem in Judah, where his family's from, where his heritage is from, he just found out that Jerusalem, the walls are broken down, and that Jerusalem is in ruins. And he knows that there have been people that have gone back to Jerusalem uh, over the last several decades to try and rebuild it. And the report he got is that uh, even though they've rebuilt the temple, the walls and the gates are broken down. Which means that in, the people who live there are incredibly an incredibly vulnerable place. It means that they could be attacked at any point. They're exposed. It's extremely dangerous. In fact, by the time he's heard that report, they may already be dead. So he's extremely concerned about Jerusalem, and he's been praying for an opportunity to stand before the king and ask the king if he can go back and rebuild the walls. So the king finally has been waiting month after month after month, and finally the king says, hey, what's going on with you? Why are you so sad? You'd think Nehemiah is saying, oh, finally, I've been praying for this opportunity. Oh, this is great. Well, king, here's the deal. You'd think that he'd be excited. But what was his emotional reaction? The king saying, why are you so sad? And he said, then I was very what? What was his reaction? He was afraid. Now, why was he afraid? Why wasn't this an exciting opportunity? Well, there's a little bit more backstory that we haven't covered yet to this whole incident about rebuilding the walls. You see, these people that had gone back several, about a decade before, a guy named Ezra led this group of, of Jews back from Persia. They'd gotten to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. And they're aware of how dangerous it is without a wall. So they begin building the wall. There's already been an attempt to rebuild the wall and the gates. But the surrounding kingdoms nearby were so threatened by this. They're so territorial over this area. They're like, oh, we don't want another kingdom popping up here. So they were so territorial that they sent a letter back to the king, to Artaxerxes, saying, hey, king, you don't want to let this happen. So I want you to stay there in, in Nehemiah, but let me backtrack to the book of Ezra and let me read to you what happened about five to ten years before this story of Nehemiah. Listen to what happened. They, um, king Artaxerxes gets this letter that says, be it known to the king that the Jews who came from you to us have gone to Jerusalem and they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, watch this. They're just all this flattery and 
flowery language. He says, they say, Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send the information to the king. You see what's happening here? They're jealous. They're threatened. Their territory is being infringed on. They're seeing, oh my goodness, Jerusalem's being rebuilt. They've got walls. We've got to stop it. So all these governors, all these officials from this region, they come together, they write a letter together and send it back to King Artaxerxes saying, man, you don't want to let this happen. This is a rebellious, wicked city. They're going to rise up against you and they certainly aren't going to pay you taxes. And honestly, we just don't want to see the king be this, that dishonored. That would, just, that would hurt our hearts to see that king. We, we care. We care about you. King Artaxerxes. They send this letter back. So what's, how does King Artaxerxes, the very man that Nehemiah is standing in front of, how does King Artaxerxes respond back? Let me jump down and read. This was his response. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me and take care not to be slack in this manner. Why should damage grow to hurt the king? See what's happening here? He bought it. He bit. They say, King, do you know about Jerusalem? They're rebellious. They're going to rise up against you. They're not going to pay you taxes. You need to know, don't let this be rebuilt. And the king got all worried and like, well, I can't have that. And so he sent a letter back. He says, make sure they stop rebuilding the city. Stop rebuilding the walls. I don't want to be dishonored. I don't need this in my life. So that adds a whole new complexion to Nehemiah's interaction with Artaxerxes, doesn't it? He's standing before the, the man. He's, he's been mourning and weeping that his people are in danger. And who put them in danger? King Artaxerxes. By halting the rebuilding of the wall. Why is Nehemiah so afraid when he has this opportunity? Because at least... Why am I so upset, king? Because my people are in danger. The walls are broken down. You put them in danger. You made a mistake. It's your fault. That decree you made five years ago or three years ago, whatever it was, to stop the rebuilding, that crushed me. You've endangered my heritage. It's your fault. At least it looks like he's telling Artaxerxes he made a mistake. You were duped. You fell that easy for such a, a letter like that. They just had to put in a little flattery and you fell for it. At most, he's looking like he wants to rebuild a rebellious city. Can you imagine? That's why he's so afraid. Now, if you add on top of that, let's just pile on what the drama is here. Let's just pour this on. On top of that, historians say that under this particular king, Artaxerxes I, that the Persian Empire, many say, began to weaken under his reign. And the reason was because his fathers had expanded the kingdom so much, but under his reign, he was constantly trying to put out uprisings against him, constantly. And so this is not just a guy who's afraid of one uprising. This is a guy who spent his reign trying to put down rebellions. He, he is postured against those. He's paranoid of rebellions. And this is, Nehemiah is essentially, has to have the boldness to stand before him and say, hey, I know you put a stop to building, rebuilding that rebellious city, but let me go rebuild it. That takes a lot of boldness. What does he say? I want you to see this opening line in verse 3 that he says to King Artaxerxes because it's so strategic. Look, Nehemiah 2, verse 3. I said to the king, 
Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Do you see that opening line? He must have rehearsed this for months. And you see the fruit of that. I mean, it is so strategic. What's his first words out of his mouth? He says, what's wrong with you? Why are you so sad? First words, king, live forever. You see how strategic that is? Number one thing that this king's going to wonder is, is this guy going to be disloyal? Does this guy want to start a rebellion? His first words are to pull that concern right out from under him. He says, king, I'm on your side. I live forever. I'm loyal to you. His first words is that he shows him respect. Now, I want you to notice another thing. I want you to think about what Nehemiah is going through emotionally here. When he hears that the walls are still broken down, how do you think he feels towards his boss? The one who stopped it. Do you think he's struggling with anger? You've endangered my people because you're afraid of not getting all your taxes. My, my people could already be dead. This city that I believe in so much is in ruins, and you are so afraid of your precious honor that you put a stop to it. Can you imagine he's struggling with, with anger? But you notice he, when he gets his opportunity, he doesn't shoot himself in the foot by, make, by satisfying his emotions. He's too wise for that. He's too wise to not be controlled and to speak clearly to this king. He treats him with respect. He says, oh, king, live forever. He starts with respect. There's an important thing that he's doing here because respect is not the same thing as conformity. And sometimes we think, well, if I'm respectful to someone or if I'm listening to someone, then I'm just kind of, I'm just tolerating or I'm just conforming or I'm agreeing with them or look like I'm endorsing them. Those are two separate things. He's being respectful. He's going to speak the truth. He's going to disagree with his former decision, but he's going to be respectful the entire time. He starts with, oh, king, live forever. And then do you notice what he says? He says, why shouldn't my face be sad? The city, the place of my father's graves. Did you notice that he says the city? you'll notice through this entire dialogue, he never mentions the name Jerusalem. He talks about Jerusalem before when he's praying. He talks about Jerusalem afterwards freely. But in this dialogue with the king, he's strategic. He never mentions the name Jerusalem because he knows the king is associating Jerusalem with wicked and rebellious city. He's so planned. Never mentions Jerusalem, but he's not hiding where he's going. It's not being deceiving. He, he's not trying to mislead. He tells him he's going back to his, the city of his, of his ancestry. And he tells him later that it's in Judah. He's very strategic. I want you to notice the last thing in this that's just so critical. You see how planned he is. He says it like this. Why shouldn't my face be sad? The place of my father's graves is in ruins. You see what he's doing here? He's drawing the king in to empathize with him. Notice he doesn't say, what's really burdening his, his heart? Man, my, my people are in danger. But does he stand before this Persian king whose ancestry, who his um, forefathers have constantly been conquering and plundering and putting cities in ruins, who probably doesn't really have a soft heart for cities in ruins and struggling people? 
doesn't use that angle with him. He says, the place of my father's graves is in ruins. He's appealing to something that is going to strike a chord with that king. He's appealing to honor. This is a man whose fathers and and grandfather and great-grandfather have statues built around their tombs. He knows what's going to appeal to him. Here's what you see here. It's a great thing. He's convincing the king. He's not coercing the king. He's not saying, king, you made such a mistake. Do you realize what you did? You endangered those people. You can make it right. No, he doesn't do that. He knows what's going to draw the king in, and he uses that. He convinces the king. Let's keep going. Look at uh, verse 5. This is very instructive. Look what he says. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Man, this is a pretty bold statement. Did you notice what he just did? He stood on his past performance with the king. Do you see that? He says, if I have found favor in your sight. Okay, if you've had a bad run, if you're Nehemiah and you've had a bad run of poor performance reviews, you're probably not going to say this. You're probably not going to draw attention to your past performance record. You're not going to say, man, if I have found favor in your sight, and the king's like... (laughs) Actually, we got some things we need to talk about, man. I mean, you've been late to work here lately. I mean, you always spill the wine all over me. I mean, this is, you, you actually have not found favor in my sight. I mean, he's that confident that, he, that he's got a strong a performance record to the king that he can actually stay, that he actually stand on. He actually has chips to use with the king. He says, essentially, king, you know that I've served you faithfully, and if I've done a good job, you can, I'm asking that you would do this for me. That is pretty powerful. Here's what he's doing. He has earned the right to make this request. He's worked hard for all the years that he's served him, so he's earned the right to make this request. He's not demanding something. He's earning it. See how strategic he is in this. All right, I want to jump down to verse 9 and 10, and we're going to stop there for this morning. Look at verse 9. It says this, Then I came to the governor's of the province beyond the river. So he, he's left Persia now. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Okay, you know that point in an adventure story where everything seems to be going well? In fact, it's going too well. And then there's these characters that appear on the scene, you're like, oh, they're going to be trouble. Okay, you just got introduced to the villains of the book of Nehemiah. Sanballat and Tobiah. By the end of this story, you're going to hate those guys. They're like, you just love to hate them. They always do something that's just, oh, bothers me. We're going to get to know them a little bit more next week, but you just got introduced with the villains, Sanballat and Tobiah. I want you to see what Nehemiah did. Again, so wise. So he takes these letters. He asked the kings for these letters 
of permission, and he goes to the other side of the river, the Euphrates. He gets to the other side where all these kingdoms are, and he goes to all the governors there. He stops by each of their headquarters or their palaces, and he shows them letters from the king saying, I'm on, the king has given me permission to do this. Now, who is he stopping to talk to? These are all the guys who had come together and sent a letter back to King Artaxerxes saying, stop rebuilding the wall. So Nehemiah could have just waltzed into Jerusalem and said, man, I've got all these letters. I just, I dare them to send a letter to Artaxerxes. I would love it. I'd love for them to come and sit down. I'd love to have this whole thing and then just produce this letter and just, I'll I'll have them. I mean, that'd be just such a great moment. He doesn't do that. He's strategic. He respects them. He, he shows them honor. He goes to each one and say, hey, look, I want to show you this letter. I'm, on, I'm coming from King Artaxerxes. I want to let you know that I'm here on official business to, to go to Jerusalem. Here's the king's letter. By the way, did you notice also who was standing behind Nehemiah? Part of the king's army. So that didn't hurt either. Hey, I got this letter, and don't mind uh, all these horsemen behind me. They're just here with me from the king. Uh, don't, don't mind that. I want you to see how strategic he is. He's not wasting any time. He's not trying to get back at anyone. He's got a job to do. He stops by, shows them honor and respect. He stops by with these letters. He has a little bit of a show of force with them to show, okay, I mean business. He's strategic ahead of time each, each part of the way. Here's what I want us to see from this passage this morning. You see two attributes from Nehemiah. First of all, he's bold. Man, did you... I mean, think about what he just did. Artaxerxes thinks Jerusalem is a a wicked and rebellious city. He sees them as rebels, as an uprising waiting to happen. He sees Jerusalem as the enemy. And just the nuts and bolts of what Nehemiah just did is he just went to the king and said, let me rebuild that enemy city. And by the way, can I use your stuff to rebuild it? And by the way, actually, could you fund it? I'd like a letter to your forests. I want to use all the timber from your forest to rebuild it. Can you send your army with me to rebuild the enemy city? I mean, the nuts and bolts of what he just did. Man, that's gutsy. That's a lot of bravery, a lot of courage. I mean, that's very, very bold. I mean, you got to say, okay, it turned, I mean, he survived. But man, he just went out into a desert and sat down on a sled with a rocket engine behind him. There's a little bit more to the story, isn't there? Man, he was so bold, but he was also so wise in every single thing he did, how he handled the king, how he talked to the king. Every piece was calculated. It was bold, but it wasn't foolhardy. It wasn't reckless. It wasn't stupidity. It was very bold, and it was very wise. Now you're called, you and I are, each of us are called to build something. And and you're building your family, you're building your home, your household, you're building a career, you're building, whatever it is that you're building, you're building all kinds of things. Maybe you're building a business, maybe you're building your education. You are building something right now. All of us are wired to be builders. And if you're going to build something, it will require two attributes simultaneously. It's going to require boldness, and it's going to require wisdom. There's going to be risks, but there's going to have to be a lot of planning and strategy. It's going to require 
two different things. And here's the problem with these two attributes. Sometimes we take these attributes and we think that they're like on this spectrum. So in other words, like the, the, the less bold you are, the more wise you are. The more wise you are, the less bold you're going to be. Or the more bold that you're going to be, the less, the less wise you're going to be. We kind of look at it like this. It's like a continuum. We see bold at one end and wise at the other end. So if I'm going to be very, very bold, that means I'm going to do stupid things. Or if I'm going to be very, very wise, that means I'm going to be very, very cautious. But that's not the best way to think about bold and wise. They're not in conflict with each other automatically. They're two separate attributes. So look at it more like this. Instead of a spectrum and a continuum, look at it like a chart like this. You've got wisdom. You've got boldness. And I want you to think about these categories. Go to the next slide. I want you to think about it like this. You have decisions and you've got actions that you can take with whatever you're building right now. And, and it can be not very bold and not very wise. And, and if that's where you're at, then really what you're just doing is conforming to the status quo. Because if, if everything is fine and nothing needs any risk, if the status quo is fine, then we have no need for leaders. So if something doesn't require a lot of thought or a lot of boldness, then you're just conforming to the pattern that already exists. But if something's, you do something very, very bold, but not very wise, what quadrant are you in? It's careless. Like, look, I'm taking a big risk. I'm doing something very, very bold, but you've not thought it through it very much, and so you're doing something careless. But on the other side, you may say, look, I'm doing something very, very wise, but I'm not really taking any risk. That's cautious. But as a leader, if you're going to build whatever you're going to build, there are going to be moments where you're going to have to do things very bold and very wise. And when you do those things, that is catalytic. Because any, anything that brings change, anything that brings transformation, anything that challenges the status quo, anything that brings innovation is going to be a risk. It's going to take boldness, but it's going to need to be very, very calculated no matter what you're building. Maybe you're starting a new company. It's going to take a lot of boldness, a lot of risk. It's going to take a lot of wisdom. Maybe you've got a new initiative at work that you're going to propose or that you're starting. Man, that's going to take a lot of risk and a lot of boldness, courage, strength. But you're going to need a lot of wisdom for it to go well or it's just carelessness. Maybe, you're, maybe you've got, you're in the middle somewhere in your organization and you want to advocate for change. There's something not right. And you're going to go and you're going to make the risk of proposing change within the organization. Well, you, it's going to take wisdom. You're going to have to think through strategically how to do it. But it's also going to take boldness. These two things are not intention. We need both. We are called by God to be strong and courageous, but to be wise. Now, you may be thinking, well, I don't know that I'm faced with a moment like that in my job or, or in my career, but you know, if you remember the first week, we talked about what are we building? And we made a commitment that we were going we to build what God wants us to build. And so there's actually moments all the time as you are building the things that God wants you to build that is going to require boldness and going to require wisdom. And we've got to re realize that those two things are separate. For, and if we don't, if we see them as a continuum, the problem is this. Look at this. Sometimes we use wisdom as an excuse for our lack of boldness. So sometimes what we're saying is, well, that, that's just not wise. I'm not even going to do that. And what we're saying is we're just being cowardly. Can I give you an example? You're building what God wants you to build. You're trying to be an overt, outspoken Christian at work. Tell people about the gospel, seize opportunities. 
But someone comes along and says, man, you're not going to get anywhere in this organization if you do that. I mean, just think about it. If you, if you want to move up the ladder, if you want to have more influence, you're going to just need to tone it down. You need to quiet down a little bit. And what if that person may be hiding behind wisdom as an excuse for their lack of boldness? Or maybe they might even be threatened and convicted by your boldness and using wisdom to hide behind. Or what about maybe you say, look, I'm, I'm thinking about going on a mission trip. And um, you tell someone that you're going on a mission trip, and, they, and they're like, why would you go there? I mean, there's plenty of people you can serve here. Well, I know that, but there's also people. Who's going to reach people overseas? Yeah, but that's just so dangerous. I mean, it's not even wise to go over there. Someone may be disguising their lack of boldness with wisdom. But you know the inverse is true as well? Sometimes we use bold, boldness as an excuse for our lack of wisdom. Let's use those same two examples. You've got the overt Christian. Man, they don't care who they offend. They're just bold. They're not using any wisdom. They're, they'll kick down doors. I don't care if I offend someone. This is the truth, and they need to hear it. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just being bold for, for Jesus. I'm being courageous. And they're using that as an excuse to not be, be wise, be strategic, be thoughtful. Maybe there's moments that you hold back. Maybe that's wisdom. You've got to have boldness and wisdom. You know, maybe you are feeling called to be on a mission trip. That doesn't mean that you just go in there without a plan. That's just not wise. Well, I'm going to go down there and, you know, I'm using, I'm on God's errand. So if, I'm, if God's behind me, then, then he'll figure it out. It's called faith. I'm just going in there and, and we use boldness as an excuse for a lack of wisdom. No, we need to be very bold and very wise. You know, there's one area you say, okay, well, where does this in intersect with my life? Well, can we talk about one area that all of us are called to lead in? Let's talk about just one particular area this morning. Let's talk about when you're sharing your faith with someone. How about a family member? And that might be the hardest category of people to share with. That takes a lot of boldness and a lot of wisdom. How about someone at work that you know a relationship? Or how about a complete stranger? You want to share your faith or get in a conversation about God that takes a lot of boldness and a lot of wisdom. And sometimes when we, when, sometimes we use way too much boldness. Sometimes we use way too much boldness and we just kind of kick down a door and we got saved and so we go back to our family member and we say, we say hey, you got to hear this and what you're doing is wrong. I know, I used to think like you, but what you're doing is wrong and you got to come to church with me and then I, I blow up that relationship. And I'm using my boldness and I'm not having wisdom. I'm not doing the things that Nehemiah did. What did Nehemiah do? He was so calculated. He respected and honored that person. He was so calculated, he, he didn't try and beat him over the head. No, he drew them in. He was wise and bold. Maybe you're sitting down with someone, you get in a conversation, maybe it's even a complete stranger. And you realize, you know, this is going to take a lot of wisdom to navigate this conversation. It's going to take wisdom, but it is going to take boldness. And sometimes I say, well, I, I don't know how to do this, and, and I'm afraid I'm going to offend them. But, you know, it is going to take a step of courage. Maybe it's someone at work and you say, you know what, I'm going to invite them to church. Easter's coming up, you know, and it's a great time. Maybe some people are a little bit more open to, to going to church, so I'm going to invite them to church. Man, that's going to take boldness, but it's also going to require you picking your moment and doing it with wisdom. As a leader, whatever the category, it's going to require being bold and being wise, no matter what God's calling you to build. I'll kind of bring it to one more, one more environment. We're building something together, church. There's something that we're called to build together. 
And you know, when we meet together, I want to think about it in this terms. You know that this room in here, this is less a sanctuary and more a situation room. You know, there's sometimes as a church that we're saying, okay, man, my life is so crazy and I've got, I'm risking here and this is all changing and turning over, but the place that I just needed to be safe and predictable consistently is church. Don't change anything ever at church. It's got to stay the same. I like it the way it is now. I don't need any more change in my life. I don't need any more risks. I don't need any more boldness. I just want it safe and predictable. One of the most dangerous words in church is change. And I'm saying this to you in a season where I'm not, I'm not about to make a big announcement or anything. I'm just telling you that. But one day there's going to be one. I don't know when it is. But one day there's going to be something. Why? Because what are we building together? Whatever we're going to build is going to require boldness and risk. And it's going to require wisdom both together. And so remember what we're doing together This is not just merely, this is my safe place where it's about me and being fed and reconnecting with God. And this is my quiet space of worship. This is my sanctuary. Church, this is a situation room. This is where we come together and realize there is a world that has fallen and lost and facing an eternity in hell. And we are going to do whatever it takes to reach them with all boldness and all wisdom. We are going to ring it out and say together, we are going to reach out and do whatever it takes. It's going to always require boldness. There's a, a letter that General Patton sent to his son right before D-Day. His son at the time was uh, in um, West Point, so he's being trained to be a warrior. So this legendary warrior, General Patton in World War II, legendary warrior writes his, war, his soon-to-be warrior son a letter. I just want to end with this thought. Listen to what he says. This is right before um, D-Day. He says, All men are timid on entering any fight. Whether it is the first fight or the last fight, all of us are timid. Cowards are those who let their timidity get the better of their manhood. You will never do that because of your bloodlines on both sides. I think I've told you the story of Marshal Touraine who fought under Louis XIV. On the morning of one of his last battles, he had been fighting for 40 years. He was mounting his horse when a young aide-de-camp who had just come from the court and had never missed a meal or heard a hostile shot said, Monsieur Touraine, it amazes me that a man of your supposed courage should permit his knees to tremble as he walks out to mount. Terrain replied, My Lord Duke, I admit that my knees do tremble, but should they know where I shall this day take them, they would shake even more. That is it. Your knees may shake, but they will always take you towards the enemy. Christian, you're called to be bold. Not a spirit of fear, but of courage to be strong and courageous, to face down the enemy, to seize opportunities, to take risks, to make this life count, to build something that is worthy of the calling that's on your life by God. 
And as bold as you are, you are called to use your entire mind and heart and soul to be as strategic as you possibly can. You are called to be bold and wise. That's what you're commissioned to do. Why can't we just keep it comfortable and safe and predictable? Because here's why. We have the audacity to take the name of Christ and call ourselves Christians. And following after Jesus Christ means we're following after the most daring, deadly rescue mission in the history of the universe. Where Jesus came down from heaven, became like a man, knowing he would die on a cross, tortured and bleeding out. Why? Because God was going to make that a sacrifice and a payment for our sins. He came to die to pay for our sins. And he rose from the dead And God said, if you put your faith in Jesus, I'll wash away your sins and I'll send you on the same mission. God has a purpose on your life. He rescued you, but he rescued you to rescue. That's your calling, Christian. You may be here and saying, I'm not even sure I'm rescued. I feel so far from God and I feel like I'm wandering around aimlessly with no purpose on my life. Do you realize that God not only rescued you, he's drawn you close. He's wiped the slate clean. He offers you forgiveness permanently today and he wants to send you on a mission. He has a purpose for your life and you can make that right today. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? If that's you, I want to lead you in just a simple prayer between you and God. If you want to put your faith in Jesus and find forgiveness of sins, then just pray this prayer right there in your seat. Say, God, thank you for coming on a rescue mission for me. God, thank you for dying on the cross to wash me clean. Thank you, Jesus, that you rose again from the dead. I know that I, too, if I put my faith in you, will spend an eternity in heaven when I die. Thank you for calling me to a mission and having a purpose for my life. Give me boldness and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954 954- Four three two zero three two one, or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.